0: Hey, SalesLift audiences Tyler Lindley here. Today I have Jason Cutter from the Cutter Consulting Group. Uh, welcome to the show, Jason, how you doing?
1: I'm doing awesome, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Uh, Super excited for whatever we're going to talk about here, (laughs) about sales.
0: Yeah, Um, me too. Me too. I think one thing we'll definitely talk about is you've got a brand new book out. It's uh, Selling with Authentic Persuasion, available now on Amazon um, and online directly from Jason. So uh, I'd love to talk more about what does that mean, Jason? What does selling with authentic persuasion mean to you?
1: For me, it's a culmination of experience that I've had myself and also seeing other sales reps and selling with authentic persuasion to me is essentially the antidote or the answer for what a lot of salespeople struggle with, which is how do I sell effectively? How can I help people buy? How can I achieve my own financial goals? without crossing the line into the dark side of manipulation and tricks and tactics and all these these things that people are afraid of and worried about doing because they don't like it done to themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they end up defaulting to this phrase we'll talk about, I'm sure, uh, order taker, Mm -hmm. because they don't want to do that. And for me, selling with authentic persuasion means using who you are, your strengths, your good things, even your bad experiences, and bringing all of that to the table addressing your fears, and then helping people move forward by using a process of persuasion and having a framework and then treating yourself like a professional. And ultimately, like here's the punchline, is realizing it's your duty and responsibility to help somebody who has a a issue or has a goal that you can solve or help them get to a better place. Like it's your duty to help them get there. Mm -hmm. It's not something you're doing to them. It's something you're doing for them and with them.
0: Gotcha. Makes sense. You mentioned order taker there. That's, that's one of the big themes of the book is chapter one is uncovering if you are an order taker. So what are those, yeah. uh, for those that may not know, am I an order taker or am I actually an authentic <laughs> seller? What does an order taker actually look like?
1: Well, an order taker is usually like in a sales process as somebody who's giving lots of good information, probably really good at rapport, really good at relationship building, maybe even the empathy side. And then what happens is they're presenting information, they're essentially reading from the brochures, they're, they're checking the boxes of giving the features and the benefits, and then they're hoping the other person buys. They're the kind of person who's thinking, I know the training says I should ask for the sale, but I don't like asking for it, and I don't want somebody to say no, and I don't want the confrontation, and if they like me well enough, right? The, you know, the Bob Berg, if they, the people will buy from somebody they know, like, and trust. So if they know, like, and trust me, then they're going to hand me cash. And <laughs> and that way I don't have to ask for it. And I don't have to get the rejection or the confrontation. And so what happens is they just, they're hoping. And so generally what happens is a low closing rate, uh, very low response from follow-up phone calls, follow-up appointments, people just disappearing in that realm. And so they're just taking orders more than persuading people and controlling the process.
0: Hmm. Gotcha. And you bring up a good point there. I mean, a lot of sales is controlling the process. For those that are struggling to do that right now, the sales reps or sales managers leading a sales team, what can you do to enable your team to control the process better?
1: I mean, the first part is, is that make sure they have a process that they know to use, and then to follow. So if we're talking to sales managers, leaders, and then also even salespeople, is a lot of times they don't want to control the process. And I say, well, what is your process? Well, I don't really have one. I just Mm -hmm. talk to them, and then I ask questions, and then I kind of go through this thing. And so they're kind of hoping, and that's the the underlying strategy of most salespeople, especially order takers, is their main closing strategy is hope. Mm -hmm. That's what they're standing behind, is hopefully they'll see something they like, and they'll want to buy. And so for for controlling the process first you have to have a process you Mm -hmm. have to have something that works and that you can follow every single time and you can you know when you do this you'll move somebody from point a to point z across the finish line so you have to have a process the second part is is that you have to look at control as something different because most people who default as order takers and again just to clarify which i haven't yet there's nothing wrong with being an order taker. It's not a negative thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to put anyone down. The first step is admitting you have a problem, right? <laughs> and so admit that you're an order taker. And for me, the reason why I wrote the book is I feel that order people who default to order takers usually do it because they care a lot. And they also don't want <clears throat> to do the wrong thing with the wrong intentions to people. So they have really good intentions. They really care. They're just missing that piece. I think that actually makes a way more successful salesperson long-term once they dial it in mm-hmm. than the pushy storytelling, manipulating, over-the-top person. They're successful short-term. It's tough for them to pull that off long-term with a lot of people at scale. So it's there's a good spot in the middle. The challenge is, is, most people feel that control is a bad word. They don't like control. They don't want to feel controlling of other people, most likely because they don't like to be controlled. Either they had a controlling parent or they're in a controlling mm-hmm. relationship, or they just, it, most people don't like to be controlled. So- Golden rule says, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to control you because I don't like being controlled. So let's all just hang out Mm -hmm. and hopefully you'll buy. And so, but switching to control as a professional would do in a process and conversation where you're controlling it because you want to help somebody get to the better place long term that they are struggling to get to. So somebody's got to be the driver.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And, and it sounds like you mean taking away, you're not controlling the person, you're not controlling the prospect, you're controlling the situation, you're controlling the steps, you're controlling the next steps, the series of actions that need to take place to move this deal forward or move on from each other. Um, it's more about controlling that process and controlling the situation rather than the person, right, Jason?
1: Exactly. And it's that's the fine line difference, right? It's not about controlling them and getting them to do something I want. Sometimes it's about controlling them and their fears and all of that situation to get what they want, which mm-hmm. is why persuasion different than manipulation. Yep. But yeah, it's and and I'm sure we'll talk about this because this is something I mentioned in the book and I say a lot online. Looking at another profession, which is what I I copy how they Function, and then I try to teach salespeople to do the same thing, which is the medical profession. Hmm. So imagine if you went into the doctor's office, and they're like, "Okay, well, tell me about your issue," and you tell them about your issue, and then they're like, "Okay, well, what would you like to do next? I mean, what do you think? <laughs> How would you like to go about this? Tell me, tell me what you're hoping to. I could do for you, and tell me what you know about different surgeries, and just you just tell me, like." That would be ridiculous <laughs> if we think about it. Like no, no doctor would function very well long term if they took that approach. It sounds nice. Yep. It sounds great. That's an amazing bedside manner, but like you don't leave it up to the patient to determine like how they think they could get well, especially probably because they looked it up online and <laughs> now they think they know what's wrong. And the salespeople do the same thing, which is okay, you just tell me where you want to go with this versus I care about you. So I'm gonna control the process.
0: Yep. Exactly. One thing I think an inherent, if you're talking about comparing salespeople to doctors, which I think is an apt example, one thing that doctors have that we don't is typically they have credentials that, you know, they are a doctor, they went to medical school, here's the degree on the board. And and us sales folks don't usually have that luxury because there is no... Degree, or there's no training and set, you know, salespeople come from all different walks of life, different experiences, different life experiences. How do we build that authority like a medical professional has? You assume that they have kind of walking in based on their training, based on their background, based on their experience as salespeople. How can we build some of that same authority like a doctor, but without the doctor in front of our name and without the degree on the wall? How could we do that as salespeople?
1: Well, and what doctors have even beyond that, which you're absolutely correct, is they also have a test that they have to pass to become a doctor. Then there's an ethics board, and then they have to renew. They have to stay within the rules. Mm -hmm. If they don't follow the rules, they'll get sued. If they get sued enough times, they lose their license. And there's this protective body over the top of the medical profession, the legal profession, Mm -hmm. Um, even like electricians, plumbers. They literally have this thing. If you screw up as a plumber enough times, like you will lose your license. right. But salespeople don't have that. Salespeople have, okay, just show up. My first day as a salesperson, technically, my boss said, hey, I sent out 10,000 postcards last week. Here's the phone. Here's the lead sheets. Ask these questions, put them on hold, come get me and I'll do the rest. I'm now a salesperson. (laughs) Boom. I'm now a salesperson. And it was the mortgage business. So now I'm a salesperson helping people get into the largest debt of their life. And that was my full training. So yeah, that's the challenge with sales is that there isn't that. And I think that's what causes issues for salespeople. And then also causes issues for the public because the public gets what they get, which is then what's given sales the bad word and the bad feeling and vibe in the world. And so what can salespeople do? Really just embrace it on your own. I mean, you Mm got to get the knowledge, the experience, the training. Whether it's internal or you have to go out and get training or go out and get a coach or get a mentor, take courses, read books, put in the hours. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell mode, 10,000 hours like you mm-hmm. listed in Outliers. I mean, that's a huge one where you just got to put in the time and you just got to do it. At some point, though, you've got to decide, I know what I'm doing. I care about my prospects, I'm going to have a process, and I'm going to act like a professional, Mm -hmm. even without certificates and bodies out there, because I'm going to do the right thing for other people. And I'm just going to operate that way. And when you make that shift, which is what I talk about in the book, then what happens, it also helps when people, when you're pushing people forward, because you want to help them. They have a problem. If they go the other direction, or they, they don't buy right now, they're going to put their head back in the sand. Negative things could happen in their life. Right. And so then, when you're pushing people and trying to move them out of their comfort zone because it's scary, when they call you on it, then you're coming from a different place. Right. I'm not pushing you because I care about my commission. I'm pushing you because I care about you. I consider myself a professional, but really, you've got to own it until guys like you and I, and the sales leaders and the women out there, and everyone comes together and form some kind of governing body in mm. the world that governs how salespeople. <laughs> until that magical day, everyone's just got to take it on their own yeah. responsibility and shift it.
0: Yeah, that would be an interesting day. I don't know that that day will ever come. So uh, I think we may just go without that governing body, which I, is which is fine, I guess. But you know what?
1: It, it's interesting though, because it is possible. I mean, if, if it, mm. we all banded together, like the people who do the podcast, like, We do, and everyone out there's the leaders that are doing lots of great stuff. It is possible to do that. I mean, what's interesting, and I don't know if you know this, there's actually universities now that offer bachelor's degrees in sales.
0: Right. That's a very no, new thing. Yeah. That's a very, very new, new thing. thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: Four-year degree in sales. And then that person is basically being trained and prepped to go do giant enterprise sales, at giant enterprise companies. <laughs> yeah. And it's so that's an
0: interesting start. It is. It is. Yeah. It's funny. I, I went to Clemson university and I got a degree in marketing because it was the most similar thing you could get to sales since I've graduated. They now have a, have a sales program that you could get involved with. Yeah. So I do think it's interesting that it's coming down to the university level, which at the end of the day, that's, i think that's important giving people those skills the training in college having them do internships throughout so that when they get to the job force it's not first day on the job i know nothing i'm I'm trying to apply maybe some related experience to sales but i've never really sold whereas you can get them some real world experience and training and they're ready day one to actually go and sell yep yeah, which is great. So, were you what did you major in in school? Or did you was it anything related to sales or marketing?
1: Absolutely related to sales. My bachelor's from UC Santa Cruz is in marine biology. Oh. And I spent years focused on and tagging sharks, so absolutely nothing <laughs> to do with sales. And and it is an indication of how much I didn't even want to deal with people. I didn't want to go into sales. I wasn't planning on going in sales. My parents right. Grow, very analytical kind of an anti-sales household. I would rather tag sharks than deal with people, um, <laughs> which most people, that's their big fear.
0: Do you think um, kids, I mean, do you think people know when they're just going, just getting into school, would they know like, I want to go into sales? Would that be a desirable place now that these sales programs exist? Do you think a lot of people are signing up for that because they see the opportunity in sales? Or do you still think sales maybe has a, a bad rap and that folks maybe aren't ready to take that jump that soon and, and put their old career on, oh, I'm just going to be a career sales rep?
1: I don't know. that. Uh, that's an interesting one to explore. In my experience, the kind of person that does that ends up in sales and ends up doing really well in sales is somebody who doesn't fit the mold in most other things. Mm-hmm. Probably someone who didn't do great in school. We we think of the Gary V's of the world where, you know, and, and I've known people like that as well, where in school, they're not focused. They're not doing well in school. They don't understand the point of school. It doesn't fit what they are good at, which is sales and persuasion or marketing. Throwing parties, which is sales <laughs> and marketing. And they're just, it, that translates, right? I know people who used to do that and throw parties and host parties become amazing at sales because they're just taking that same skill with them, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's interesting that someone would say, I want to be in sales. So I'm going to go get a four-year degree (laughs) and how that fits with the kind of person you would classically think as really good in sales naturally
0: Mm -hmm.
1: versus someone like myself who just ended up falling into sales and then learning it my way. Uh, Yeah, it's interesting.
0: Which I guess another thing at play too is Can you, what are you going to learn in a four year degree in an educational setting that has that framework versus would you be better off just going and selling anything for four years? Would that be a better degree? I guess it depends because a real world experience, like we both know, is there's no substitute for it. We can role play, we can read, we can uh, train, we can get a degree. At the end of the day, though, at some point, you've got to get in the ring and actually sell. So I wonder if it would even be a good substitute versus just going and selling anything for four years.
1: And I think it depends on where you want to go, right? If you're familiar with Tim Ferriss at all, Tim Ferriss, at one point, he wanted to get an MBA. Mm-hmm. And he said, instead of going to get an MBA, and I think he was going to go to Stanford because he's a Bay Area guy. And he's like, okay, that's going to be, I think it was 200 grand or 100 mm-hmm. grand, something like that. He's like, instead of doing that, why don't I just take that and invest it in money as an angel investor? And I'll, I'll if, if I lose it all, it's fine, but I'll learn a lot. Yep. And I'll I'll learn from the financials and from businesses. And so he did that for years and ended up making a bunch of money. But now I think it really depends on what the outcome goal is. Because with the four-year degree going into sales, now when they're doing internships with these big companies, so it's essentially going to a really good school for an MBA, which is then going to instantly catapult you into an serious company with a serious salary because mm-hmm. they know what they're getting and you've been prepped and groomed for it. Yep. Um versus the School of Hard Knocks Mm four-year bachelor's degree in sales. It just really depends on where you want to go with it and what, you know, what matters. most for you. So
0: our our audience is made up a lot of sales leaders or even business owners that are trying to scale their business. They've got a proof of concept. They're ready to take the next step. They might be adding a salesperson for the first time. Maybe they've been handling sales and they're adding new sales team or they're trying to grow, scale a team from a few folks to five or 10 or 20, 20 folks. How could someone like that take some of the ideas that you are utilizing in authentic persuasion, selling with authentic persuasion? How could they take some of the things you talk about in the book and in your consulting work and apply that to growing and scaling a brand new sales team or bringing on that first new sales hire, which is a tough transition uh, to make. What what advice would you give to folks in that situation?
1: I think the biggest thing, because this is actually a group that I work with a lot. A lot of my clients are small. It's either they have one or two sales reps or they have five Mm -hmm. or they've had some and they lose them. And it's essentially a, a founder, CEO, entrepreneur, they they can sell their product really well and they're selling really based on passion, even if they're a technical founder, but they can sell because they care and they live it and they breathe it and they're passionate about it. It's exciting. The challenge is, is when they hire salespeople, they're not a process building person. So then they hope when they hire somebody on that that person can just carry the torch on their own. And then usually what's missing is the scripting, the training, the oversight, the coaching, the leadership, right? Hey, i am listened to your call. You said this, you should say that. Most of the founders in this situation say, I listened to your call. You said that. You should have said, done something different. I could have closed that. Get them back on the phone and get them to me and let me close it for you, right? Yeah. Like that, like you're laughing because you probably hear that as well. It's like that almost word for word, right? But just, just get them on the phone and get them to me and I'll do the rest And then what happens is you have a sales team that's not effective. And the biggest thing and the biggest advice and where I help my clients with the most is just building those processes. Mm -hmm. Is take what you have in your head as the founder, whatever you're doing for your sales process, and then reconstruct it, deconstruct it, and then reconstruct it into a format that some other human can do. (laughs) Because again, if you're a founder who's selling your passionate idea, you think your baby is the cutest, right? everyone thinks their baby is the cutest the problem right. is your sales team won't think your baby is the cutest they want to make some money but they're not living it the same way mm-hmm. and so you have got to you got to empower them with the right tools and that's usually what's missing yep. is all of that so
0: such a hard transition for many of those folks to make though because you've been in that position, you've been the one responsible for selling the product best. You have the most passions, your baby, your baby's the cutest, such a hard transition to go from that to allowing someone else to take the reins and be responsible for generating revenue for the business. What, what do you think that folks in that situation, what do you think they do wrong and how can they fix some of those things as they're trying to make that transition from I am the sales rep, founder-led sales, to yeah. founder-led sales manager, founder-led, I've got a team now doing this for me. How do you make that transition? What advice do you have for those folks?
1: Generally, the first step where that it goes sideways is they hire the wrong kind of person for what they need in the sales team. So for example, a lot of times they'll say, okay, what I need is a really, really experienced salesperson. Give me a veteran pro, I need someone amazing and awesome, and then they can do it all. The problem is, in my experience, and I've talked to a lot of recruiters and business owners, so Mm -hmm. it's not just my opinion, and you're smiling so you probably already know, the challenge is, is really experienced veteran salespeople are amazing at either you give them the playbook and they run with it, or they don't care about your playbook because they're amazing and they know what they're doing, and so they're just gonna do it their own way, and that doesn't always work. The challenge is is that the owner wants to abdicate sales and say, hey, I'll just bring in someone who's amazing and instead of delegating it, I'm just going to abdicate it. Please Mm -hmm. go sell so I don't have to because I've got other stuff I need to do for the business. And the other extreme where founders can make the mistake in hiring is they say, I don't have the money for a superstar. I can't afford it. So let me get somebody... New in sales, young in sales, not in life, but yes, young in sales, somebody I can afford. Mm-hmm. The challenge is that person doesn't have the experience. That's why they're cheap. And so they need to be spoon-fed everything. They need a script. They need training. They need a process. They need call coaching. They need someone standing on their neck every day to help them through everything, keep them motivated, deal with the, the 50 no's they just got without melting down. And the founder doesn't want that. The founder doesn't want babysitting. they want to abdicate. And so you've got to hire the right person with the right experience and essentially an entrepreneurial mindset where they're going to take your, your lack of system and then create a system, and you know, they may leave at some point, but that's really what they
0: need. Mm-hmm. So that sounds that's, like': that's it's somewhere, where it, sideways. it sounds like it's somewhere in the middle. It's somewhere where you've got, maybe you have some experience or maybe you have just a little bit of experience, but you're not that lone wolf. I'm going to do it my own way. You know how to play within the rules of the game. However, you also have the confidence to be able to to cut it loose in the fourth quarter and know, know what to do in order to win, in order to succeed, in order to drive revenue. Whereas someone maybe more junior wouldn't have that kind of confidence. Uh, do you ever agree splitting up the roles like a lot of, uh, a lot of software companies do where you've got people on the front end that are doing a lot of the prospecting and a lot of the qualifying, and then you're passing it off to someone doing the closing. Do you think for a business like this that's just getting started, that's trying to scale, is it better to divide and conquer like that? Or do you prefer having each individual own the entire process from start to finish?
1: I think the sooner you can divide and conquer and split up the job responsibilities, I think the better. Now, obviously, if you're brand new, you can hire one person. That one person on the sales team has to do it all. They've got to do the marketing, then they've got to do the demos, they've got to do the sales, with all of that. But if you could hire two, I would probably hire one SDR type and one salesperson or two salespeople that are hungry enough to do the Mm -hmm. outbound, the SDR, the telemarketing, whatever that is. And then the third person you would hire is that person to feed them. Mm -hmm. Um, And the main reason is is that it's two different mindsets. It's two different people. Uh, One person can move up. The standard that a lot of companies do is they treat SDRs as the farm league for Mm. account executives and for sales. Sometimes that's appropriate, sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's people who that's their level is an SDR. They're really good at that part and they're not good at the rest or they're far away from that. And it's a long process, right? We're talking years. Some people, like they shouldn't be an SDR. They just haven't gotten into a sales role yet. But the problem is is that if you make your sales people, your closers, we'll use that term, doing a lot of outbound cold outreach, the challenge is is that's really either burning them out or putting them in one gear, which is hunter gear. And then the challenge is when they get somebody on the phone, they now have to switch to relational, problem solver, authentic persuader kind of Mm -hmm. system and process mode. And it's tough. It's tough to be like, hunting and chasing and then you get something it's okay now instead of a thousand miles an hour i need to dial it down Mm -hmm. and let's have a nice conversation without me just railroading you or forgetting what i did because i got so excited i finally got somebody on the phone Mm -hmm. um so that's the part (laughs) of the challenge
0: thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the sales lift this was part one of two with jason cutter of our interview stay tuned for part two coming out tomorrow and as always visit the saleslift.com for show notes and more talk to you soon Thanks, guys.